Thank you. Yeah, we're on to our next, uh, next church and the next letter. And I've called it a call to integrity. So let's have a look at this. Chapter 3, and we're just going to do the first six verses. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not, sorry, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, a man was little surprised one morning when his wife told him she thought he was a model husband. Not used to such flattery, particularly first thing in the morning, he went to his dictionary to look up the word model, just to see what sort of compliment this might be. There he found the definition. Model, a small plastic imitation of the real thing. And the question for us today, as we look at this church in Sardis, is whether we too might be plastic imitations of the real thing. Because Sardis was living off its reputation. Just look back at verse 1. Jesus saying to them, you have a reputation for being alive. You have a reputation. Now, if there'd been such a thing in the first century as the good church guide to Asian Minor, then Sardis would have definitely been listed as four-star. It was known It had a reputation among the other churches in Asia as the liveliest, most thriving congregation. And nobody guessed that Jesus thought different. It's not that the church in Sardis was was out to deceive people. They believed their reputation too. They too thought they were a model church, a model of what a church should be. But they'd become a cheap plastic imitation of the real thing. Now, Sardis itself, as a city, was famous. It had been the capital of that area. It had a gold-bearing river running right through it, so it was fabulously wealthy. It was built on the side of sort of massive cliffs, so it was very impressive. But those cliffs had given the people a, a sort of false sense of security. And they'd become so complacent that we're told, even with the threat of imminent invasion by the Persians way back in 546 BC, they apparently didn't even bother to post watches on the city, on the city walls. And King Cyrus and his troops scaled the cliffs uh, under the cover of darkness and captured the whole city. Their reputation had rocked them to sleep. And the church in first century Sardis seems to be heading in the same direction. There's a lack of urgency. 
They don't realize there's a problem. They've been lulled into complacency. And so the first thing Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms is to wake up. Wake up. Wake up, he says. Um, My husband, Paul, and I have rather different approaches uh, to waking up in the morning. It has known to cause just a little bit of tension in our marriage on occasions. Um, He likes to set the alarm clock far earlier than he plans to get up. Um, And he does this so that he can make the most use of a very annoying feature, the snooze button. Whereas I like to have as much sort of proper sleep as possible and be woken up to get up, he loves that sort of state of half-sleep in preparation for the thought of getting up. And he has been known, actually, to hit that aggravating button um, about about ten times in one morning because there's no rush. Yes, he says, I'm going to get up, but not right now. But when Jesus gave the wake-up call to the dozing church of Sardis, he was looking for an immediate response. This was urgent. It was time to wake up and get moving. No time to hit the snooze button. And you know, we all occasionally need a sharp wake-up call from Jesus, don't we? We can all so easily be lulled into easy or lazy living. And you know, we need to fear the gradual. Because not many Christians wake up one morning and decide to drift away from God. That's not how it happens. Rather, our faith is eroded gradually. A compromise here. A bit of self-justification there. And sin begins to look not only attractive, but also perfectly reasonable. Are we prepared for Jesus to occasionally give us a wake-up call? Or are we constantly hitting the snooze button? Do we think that he only ever speaks to us tenderly, you know, with sort of a mild and gentle and loving tone? Or are we prepared to hear the stronger correction? Because this sleepy church family of Sardis was being given a very sharp wake-up call. Jesus gives them this devastating rebuke in verse 1. I know your deeds, he says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're actually dead. Jesus is putting the spotlight not just on their lack of urgency. No, it's much more than that. He's putting the spotlight on their lack of integrity. Yes, you have a reputation, he says to them. You may have fooled others, but you can't fool me. Others may think that you're alive and well, but I know that you're actually dead. Not just asleep, but dead. I can see what's really going on in your hearts. There's a disintegration between what appears on the outside and what's going on in the inside. There's a disconnection between the two, and it's as ugly as death, Jesus says. And you know, we can trace this sort of ugly tendency right the way through the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God said to Isaiah, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You're like whitewashed tombs, says Jesus to the Pharisees. On the outside, you appear righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy. And God hates hypocrisy. And you know, that word hypocrite was originally the word for an actor. 
someone who plays a part on a stage, who pretends to be someone he's not. Hypocrisy is make-believe. It's the let's pretend religion. Outward reputation versus inward reality. This disconnect between the outside and the inside, this is something God's been speaking about to his people right through history. And you know, we're all going to battle this one, that none of us can avoid it. None of us are immune to this disintegrated life at times. And for all of us, there are times when we're disintegrated. We lack integrity. There's a difference between our public lives and our private ones. What we say and what we really think. How we behave in one situation and how we behave in another. What we profess and what we practice. And that was the big problem for the church in Sardis. The disintegration of people's lives. Sardis may even have been the first church in history to practice nominal Christianity. It looked such a lively, happening, buzzing church from the outside. You know, if it existed today, its website would be state-of-the-art, its buildings would look terrific, its programs would be full, its outreach outreach would be well-organized, and its community projects would be renowned. Sound familiar? Sardis looked great on the outside. But Jesus' x-ray eyes had penetrated beneath the external appearances. You know, I remember so well when our children were little, and uh, a lot of things happened in our house, in the vicarage. And Paul would occasionally sort of rush in through the door and say, have you remembered, we've got people coming in just half an hour or 10 minutes, um, uh, you know, and, and we'd look around the house at the mess, you know, toys strewn everywhere, um, you know, coats and boots and things by the front door and washing up piled up in the kitchen. And we'd just look at each other and we knew what to do. We just did a blitz on the place. You know, we weren't really tidying. We can't say that. We weren't tidying. We were simply shoving everything out of sight for appearances' sake. So that when the doorbell went, we would usher people into the sitting room and they would think how immaculately we kept the place. You know, amazing. You know, with three little children. I mean, what a couple. But so often our lives are like that, aren't aren't they? They look spotless and smart in the showroom of our lives, the sitting room. But actually the hidden bits behind the sofa, under the stairs, up in the bedroom, it's all a bit of a mess. But that's okay, we think, because no one can see it. And that's so often how our lives are, externally looking great, internally a bit of a mess. Maybe it's at work, outside we appear calm and in control. But inside, we're either terrified of making a mistake or we're seething with annoyance or frustration. Maybe even here in church, you know, we look all together. We look as though we're engaged with the worship. But inside, our hearts are are feeling cold. We know that we're feeling a little detached. So often, there's this disintegration between the outside and the inside. And that disconnect between what we show and what we feel. So there was a lack of urgency, there was a lack of integrity, and thirdly, there was a lack of consistency. There's just a few people in the church in Sardis, we're told, who haven't soiled their clothes. Verse 4. Only a few who hadn't forgotten Paul's words not to conform to the patterns of the world around them. 
Because beneath the pious exterior of this respectable congregation, there was apparently secret uncleanness going on, probably sexual immorality. How they appeared on Sundays wasn't how they were the rest of the week. And the challenge for all of us, isn't it, is to lead consistent lives. Consistency between our Sunday face and our weekly face. This is what makes us feel clean. This is what gives us the freedom to be open and honest with God and with others. And I wonder how comfortable many of us would feel if the others sort of sitting around us here could see some of our behavior during the rest of the week. Whether it's at home or at work or with our friends or in other situations. We all long to lead consistent lives, don't we? Where there's, where there's no shame, no hiding. And I guess if we're honest, every one of us would, would admit to, to living some sort of disintegration. There's something of the Sardis church in every one of us. Now that's the problem, but what's the solution? Well, Jesus gives a couple of very clear commands here. He first of all has told us, hasn't he? Wake up, verse 1. Wake up. Don't be lazy. Don't be complacent. Don't, don't be found half asleep. If you're watching things you shouldn't watch, wake up. If you're reading things you shouldn't read, wake up. If you're going places you shouldn't go to, wake up. If you're thinking things you shouldn't be thinking, wake up. If you're speaking in a way you shouldn't be, wake up. And strengthen what remains. That's what it says in verse 2. Strengthen what remains. And this strengthening, we're told, can come from two directions, outside and inside. Outside, by keeping on hearing God's word and putting it into practice. Verse 3, remember what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. In other words, keep receiving. Make sure you put, your, you put yourself in the way of hearing God's word regularly. Don't get complacent. Don't think you know it all. And keep obeying. Keep obeying. Make sure you're in accountable relationships, whether it's in your home group or prayer partnerships or mentors. Don't get isolated. Because we all need help. We need help from outside of us. We need help from others to keep obeying and repenting. To keep us from straying. To keep us from self-deception. And sometimes to speak truth into our lives. We need help from outside of us, but not just from outside, from inside too. Strengthening from the inside. And we've probably noticed, some of us, as we've been doing uh, these different letters in Revelation, that at the beginning of each of these seven letters, Jesus is described by something that's relevant to the church, to that particular church. And for Sardis here, it's the seven stars and the seven spirits of God, verse 1. Now, slightly difficult picture to work out. Even the commentators seem to find it a little bit tricky. But there's no doubt that the seven spirits must be referring to the Holy Spirit. I mean, what other message does a dead or sleepy church need to hear than the Spirit can come and breathe new life into it? 
What do we personally need more when we're struggling with disconnection in our lives than to allow the Holy Spirit to work deep inside us to bring wholeness? What else do we need? It's the Holy Spirit. And it's true that until we get to heaven, we're never going to be totally integrated people. There's always going to be something of a disconnect. But Jesus knows our hearts. He knows where we've worked to overcome, where we've tried to stay true to him. And one day, we're told, Jesus will return. And you know, that's not a threat to us as Christians. It's a promise. In fact, Jesus makes three promises here. And what he promises is, yet again, wonderfully appropriate to this church in Sardis. The promises are all about clothes and names. Just look again at verse 3. Look at what Jesus says. He who overcomes will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before the Father and his angels. Now, do you remember, many of them, we're told, had soiled their clothes. But here, we're told, the overcomer would be dressed in white. The church had received a lying name. But here we're told the overcomer's name will be acknowledged in heaven. Three promises to the one who overcomes. Three promises. First of all, we'll be given white clothes. White clothes. White for victory. White for purity. Now, how on earth will we ever be worthy to be dressed like that? How on earth will that happen? Well, the answer is just over the page. Just turn over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And here we wonderfully find the answer. One of the elders asked me, that's John, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that wonderful? Clothes washed clean, not by our own efforts, but by the blood of the Lamb. Because our worthiness is never going to be enough. Our worthiness isn't our own. It's borrowed from Christ. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to go to heaven. There's only one way to overcome. Through the one who is the great overcomer. The one who overcame even sin and death for us. We'll be given white clothes, white robes. And secondly, we will be written in the book of life. The book of life. God keeps, as it were, a register in heaven in which the names of his people are enrolled. And he tells us here that he will never by any means, there's a sort of double negative in the sentence for emphasis. He will never by any means blot out our name. That's such good news. That's the good news. The bad news is that we can be on a church register without being on God's register. And thirdly, we'll be acknowledged by Jesus himself. Jesus promises to remember our name before God. It's at that point that our name, our reputation, will count for something. Well, let's hope that the congregation in Sardis had an ear to hear what the Spirit said. Let's hope they did. 
But more than that, let's pray that we hear what the Spirit is saying to us today, 2,000 years on. What he's saying to us as a congregation. What he's saying to us individually. Because this message is as vital for us to hear today as it was for them. And I love St. Mark's. I love it. I love this church. I love what we are. I love what we do. I love who we are. But I would hate it if Jesus had to come and give us such a strong message. But let's each hear what we need to hear. Let's hear what we need to hear as a congregation, but let's each hear what we need to hear as individuals. Because God doesn't say these things simply to make us feel bad, simply to make us feel unworthy. He's able to speak to each of us individually by his Spirit. And you know, by his Holy Spirit, he is able to put the finger on exactly what we need to hear. He's able to put the finger on those things in our lives that need to wake up. Because we can't afford to be lazy, half-asleep Christians. We mustn't be tempted to press the snooze button when God is speaking. We can't afford to live off any reputation that we might have as a church or any experience that we might have had individually. We've got to live in the reality of the present. We can't afford to live disintegrated lives that bring disgrace to his name. We can't afford to live lives that profess one thing and do another. We can't afford to be a cheap plastic imitation of the real thing. And the challenge for us to live fully integrated lives, it's going to be a lifelong one. And we're probably never going to reach it this side of heaven. But let's allow, together let's allow the Spirit to do his work in us, inside us, right now. Let's ask him to start there. So that what we are outside becomes a true reflection of what's going on inside. A truly integrated life. Let's stand, shall we? And maybe the band would come up. But let's just take a moment just to respond personally, individually. Because, Lord, we say that we want to lead lives that have an integrity. We want to respond to this call to integrity, to lives that are the same on the outside as the inside, that lives that have that consistency from Sundays to Mondays, lives that are not disintegrated or disconnected, but lives that show that you, you are God, are in control. And Lord, we're so sorry. We're so sorry when we've uh, allowed ourselves to have different faces. When we've made excuses for ourselves. When we've followed the crowd. When we've allowed other things or other people to dictate. 
And Lord, we're asking you now to come by your Holy Spirit and just to, not to uh, condemn us, but to point out those things where we need to hear your voice again. We need to hear that wake-up call. And we invite you by your Spirit to come and do that, to show us those particular things where we've gone astray, where we've got disconnected, And we want to admit those things to you. And maybe if it's right to each other. And we want to walk into this week with integrity. We want to walk into this week knowing that we have lives that can be open and honest with you and with others around us. There's nothing to hide. Nothing to be ashamed of. So, Lord, come. Come by your Spirit. Show us your truth, the truth about ourselves, the truth about you.